Okay, tonight we have an interesting topic, and that is um, the power of sex. <coughs> sex is the most powerful or pervasive force in human experience. It may be intensely personal, meaningful, and creative on one side, as in a marriage relationship should be, or it can be depersonalized, meaningless, and careless the next, as in today's permissive society. Much of the glory of sex is that it can bring us as close as we may get in life to experience the mystery of our own creation and mortality. For through this act we were created, and because of this, it is sanctified, which we're going to talk about. Yet, on the other hand, it can be a blind, nearly irresistible force, seeking wanton release on the biological level. And this way, its sanctity is perverted. So on the one hand, it can be very holy, as in creation. On the other hand, it can be a biological thing which is, perverts the sanctity. Paradoxically, this most chaotic, powerful drive can only be fully experienced when it includes an element of discipline. And today we found there's the latest statistics, which was just on the radio, they did a, a massive survey. Um, the, the latest survey, this, um, since the Kinsey report, how, how long ago was that? 30 years ago, 60s, 30 years ago. And they said about 30% 30 30 of people cannot do it. What's the problem? And that's one of the ironies of our time. It can only be fully experienced when it includes an element of discipline. Otherwise, it loses its meaning. It becomes cheapened, like anything else. Any other pleasure, which is overdone, loses sensitivity. And Thomas says an interesting line. En apotropos la rayot. No one can guarantee another's sexual innocence. You can watch someone 24 hours a day like a hawk, but there's no guarantees. The only person who guarantee is himself or herself. There's no guarantees for another's innocence. Long ago, the rabbi said, the greater the man, the greater the desire. Whoever is greater than his friend, his desire is greater than his friends. I find there's a beautiful story that Talmud tells us. There's a time of the Roman persecution. The Romans had captured some Jewish girls and held them to ransom. And the Jews ransomed these girls. They were pretty Jewish girls. And they didn't have a place to put them for one night. So they said, oh, here's an old rabbi, and he has an attic. Let's put the girls in the attic. They put the girls in the attic that night, and there's a heavy metal ladder up to the leading up to the attic. And they said, as an additional precaution, let's take the ladder and let's put it down somewhere. So the rabbi finds himself waking up in the middle of the night, Here's an old man with a long white beard. He wakes up in the middle of the night. There's girls in the attic. Wow, there's girls in the attic. Takes this heavy metal ladder, which took three men to lift. He takes it up, and he puts it up, and he puts it up on the attic. And then he starts climbing up this ladder. And he says, hey, what am I doing over here? I'm crazy? He starts screaming, fire, fire, fire. So all the neighbors run in. They come in, in the middle of the night. They see the rabbi on the ladder in the middle of the night. The rabbi, who's on fire? Where's the fire? He said, I'm on fire. But that's exactly what we're saying is there's no, no one can control it. It's a powerful urge, it's a tremendously powerful urge. The effective way to eliminate immorality is to avoid it at every turn. And that's why Judaism, there's so many different laws in terms of avoiding immorality. The separation between men and women. The separation in terms of what a person is allowed to see, what a person is not allowed to see. The Torah tells us in the Shema, Lotaturu. Don't go after your heart and your eyes. So the commentaries ask, why is the heart before the eyes? They should say, don't go after your eyes and your heart. First the eye sees, and then the heart desires. So Talmud explains beautifully. There's first comes sight, but sometimes sight is innocent. When does sight have meaning? It's only after the brain thinks about it. Don't go after your heart. 
That's after you've seen the first time. The first time is innocent gaze. Then the heart says, you know what? Look again. Second sight is forbidden from the Torah. Don't go after your heart and your eyes. We run after them. We follow them. We follow our desires, base instincts. So in the beginning, let's try and stop the train before it leaves the station. I've said this story many times. It's a beautiful story. <coughs> I'll say it again. It's a beautiful story. The chief rabbi of England says this story. He said this. Um, Steve, you heard the story? <laughs> Steve's like a tape recorder. He tapes all my classes in his head. So Steve, let me know if you hear the story. Tell me how many years ago it was. Um, there's a, this beautiful story. It says there was a young man at a train station. And he sees an old man there. And he says, please sir. He says, can you tell me the time? He said, no. He says, but sir, he says, I see you have a watch on. Can you tell me the time? He said, no. He said, why won't you tell me the time? He said, well, he says, if I tell you the time, you'll start making conversation with me. You'll sit next to me on the train. You'll find out I have a girl your age. And you'll come home and you'll meet her. And you might even marry her. And I don't want my daughter to marry someone who doesn't even have a watch. And <laughs> what we see over here is everything starts off innocently enough. But everything has consequences. We stop the train before it leaves the station. That's what Jewish law tries to do. It tries to stop things in its track. So temptation today in the form of magazines, videos, books, movies. Today we have the internet. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. It has permeated our society. The abuse of human sexuality has reached stomach-turning point, And there seems no way to avoid it. Can I switch on the TV or whatever it is? And that's why today the sensitivity is being lost. That's why 30% of people just can't do it anymore. You may ask, what else is new? Haven't religions and ethical leaders throughout history decried society's lack of morality? And the answer is yes. But it's different today. Not because the sanctity of sex is violated in practice, not because television brings it into the home, and not because it's readily available today. Morality is rejected as an ideal. And right from the president down, unfortunately. We see how important Jewish law is. There's laws of yichud. Not allowing a man and woman to be alone in the same room where no one can walk in. See how important Jewish law is. The laws of touching. One thing can lead to another. Here's the president of the United States in the Oval Office. And yet, oh, so what? Whatever he does, that's his own business. As long as he doesn't lie about it. As long as he doesn't obstruct justice. So morality is rejected as an ideal. It's not an ideal anymore. He's immoral. Who cares? He's a good president. And that's never happened before. Morality, at least after pagan times, at least has been, lip service has always been paid to morality. In all Christian countries, lip service has been paid to morality. Muslim countries, lip service is paid to morality. What people do, that's besides the point. But they pay lip service to morality. Today, nobody pays even lip service to morality. And that's the difference. So therefore, today, whatever serves our needs is declared good. Did you have a good time last night? I had a good time. I had a good time. Doing what? Doing evil. So the word good itself is an ethical term. What's good and what's bad has come to denote fun. When you say the word good, it means fun. Is it good? It's fun. Yes, it's good. What do you mean by good? I mean it's fun. That's what good means today. If it's bad, it means it wasn't fun. I had a bad day in school today. Why? It wasn't fun. I had a good day in school today. The kid comes home. Why, did, why was it such a good day? Well, we had a party today. That's a good day. It was fun, so it's a good day. But it's a moral term. Good is a moral, moral term. The rationale today is, it's my body, and I can do whatever I want with it. Similarly, there is hardly a trace of guilt to be found in those responsible for media presentations of immorality. Oh, it's art. It's not immoral, it's just art. It's a different art form. You've got to appreciate art forms. And there's no attempt made to correct the situation. That's just the way it is. They now want to make a V-chip in TVs. What's a V-chip? So the parents can control what the children watch. The children, oh, it's bad for the children. You know, we, we realize that much. At least we realize a bit 
It's bad for the kids, but it's good for the adults, right? That makes sense. Today, contraception, not conception, is the focus of research. The sex act has effectively been separated from its fulfillment. That is, one is play and one is procreation. Today, we talk about play. Nothing has changed, really, because if you look at the Breshid, if you look at Genesis, you find the story of the descendants of Cain. One of the descendants of Cain was Lemech. So it tells us Lemech had two wives. One was a wife for procreation. The other one was a wife for pleasure. That's how they did it in those days. Today, nothing has changed. Just today, we combine it all in one wife. Pleasure and procreation at the same time. What's more important? We talked about oink and dink last week. One income, no children, no kids, and double dual income, no kids. Oink and dink. So that's... Today, unfortunately, we separate the two, play and procreation. The Bible says, by Lemech, he had two wives. And so nothing really has changed. It seems that sex is all right in every form, so long as it is not repressed, Freud forbid. And don't forget to use a condom. That's what we tell our kids. Put the condoms in public schools, condom machines. It's okay, just make sure, it's safe. That's all, it's okay, it's fine. We are faced with this question. What shall sex be used for now that it is no longer tied to the sacred, cosmically significant function of perpetuating the family, the faith, the human race. And society's answer seems to be very clear, fun. Stuff for procreation, forget about the family, forget about the human race, pure fun, that's it. It's interesting, there is no single term for sex in the Bible. The first term used is, it says Adam, how does it say by Adam? Huh? He knew. Vayeda Adam et And Adam knew his wife. What does that mean, new? There's different ways of knowing. There's different levels in terms of knowledge. This is one of the ways of knowing. It's very clean language, you must admit. But the title for the Bible's prohibited sexual offenses is Gilui Arayot, Uncovering Nakedness. When it's good, it's knowledge. When it's bad, it's uncovering nakedness. Maimonides, Rambam, gives three levels in terms of the sex act. The first level is the worst level, which is lowest level is Gilui Arayot, which is uncovering nakedness. The second level is Lavo Eleha, to come on her, which is using the language used by animals. The sex act is an animal act, separated by it from its holiness. And the third level is the highest level is Ladat, to know, which is the holiest way. That is the highest way, that's with holiness. Now it's interesting, Jewish tradition does not treat the sexual experience systematically. Reference to it can be found in every one of the five books of Moses, in the books of the prophets, in the chronicles. And it's interesting, the Torah is very candid. In fact, it's hard to teach it sometimes in yeshiva. How are you going to teach the passage of Lot and his two daughters? And we teach this to little kids. The little kids are learning Bereshit. And you teach this to little kids. And Lot, I mean the kids, hopefully they won't be able to understand what's going on. Yeah, a lot. They made the father drunk and they had a baby from him. Tell the kids that from an early age. What's going on? Why does the Torah put that right at the beginning of Genesis? We know God knows the children are going to learn Genesis. And the answer is God wants the children to know from an early age. Sex education in the Torah. What's right and what's wrong is clearly delineated. Abraham moves away from Lot, the Bible tells us. Straight away, that's Abraham's response. It was terribly disgraceful for Abraham that his brother-in-law and his cousin both Sarah Sarah and Abraham were cousins Sarah was from Haran actually she was his niece she was from the other there were, there were three brothers Abraham, Nahor and Haran Sarah was the daughter of Haran Abraham's brother and Lot was her brother so it was his cousin his nephew and his uh, brother-in-law at the same time he moved away from Lot Lot was, was disgraceful the Torah tells us about Sodom the word sodomy comes from Sodom, Sodom, San Francisco. It comes from Sodom. And we teach this to children right at the beginning of the Bible. Why do we teach it to children right at the beginning? And the answer is we want to teach children at the early age there's right and there's wrong. There's good and there's bad. There's moral and there's immoral. And we stress 
Straight afterwards, Abraham is looking for a wife for his son Isaac. We put the two situations together. Here's Lot with his daughters, and Abraham moves away from him, and here's Abraham looking for a wife for his son in the best possible way. So what emerges from the Torah is a moral discipline that is strict, yet highly sensitive to the human condition. One that affirms, yes, it's a joyful act, but insists that it expresses itself in controlled circumstances, and that never puts down marriage, and every opportunity deplores being a monk in a monastery is deplored in Judaism. Get married. You want to have sex? Have sex. Get married. I'm not telling you not to. But do it in a controlled, holy environment. It's holy. It's the closest we can get to God in terms of creativity. God is the creator of human beings. There are three partners in a human being. That's what the Talmud says. Father, mother, and God. It's the closest we can get. So Judaism has focused its greatest minds on understanding God's law and nature's demands. And throughout its history has succeeded in elevating sex, sanctifying marriage, and finally, establishing the family as the primary unit of the community. Traditional Judaism makes the following propositions, and this is in the handout. Number one, sex may take place only between a man and a woman. I wrote an article about this in the newspaper a couple of years ago, and you don't know how much hate mail I got. You don't know how much, how strong the gay lobby is in this country. It's amazing. Until today, I'm getting hate mail. I'm on their list. Most wanted. <laughs> Why? Because sex may take place only between a man and a woman. They don't like that. You can't say that today. It's free speech. You can say anything you want. Don't say that. That's taboo. You can't say that. You get threats to your life. I'm not joking. Intercourse with a member of the same sex or with an animal is prohibited in Jewish law. And we have to understand the background over here, what the pagans were up to in those days. The Bible tells us that in the, in, the, in the wilderness, it says the Jews came out and they cried to Moses. It says they are crying about their families. Why are they crying about their families? What's going on? So Rashi, the commentator, says they are crying because all the forbidden relationships now. I can't marry my aunt. I can't marry my sister. I can't have relations with my grandma. In Egypt, they were doing that. Egyptian kings married their sisters. Because the line of kings went through the woman. You wanted to be king? You had to marry your sister. To keep in the family. They kept everything in the family. That's where the phrase probably came from. Keeping everything in the family. So Judaism was a revolution. A moral, sexual revolution. No. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. Hey, one second. Give me a break. <laughs> they came along to Moses started crying. Give us a break. Intermarriage or incest is forbidden. Marital relations are a duty. On the other hand, you see that Judaism is not Catholicism. Marital relations are a duty and a mitzvah. In fact, the rabbis say the best time for sex is, guess what? Friday night. Friday night is the best time. It's the holiest time of the week. And it's part of Onik Shabbat, the beauty of Shabbat, the enjoying, enjoyment of Shabbat. So marital relations are a duty and a mitzvah. Only within a properly constituted marriage. Outside marriage, premarital sex is not condoned. You don't have to try before you buy. And there's no guarantees. They try, yeah, let's try again. I didn't, I didn't get that quite properly. Let's try and try and try a couple of years. They say, oh, you know what? You know the famous joke. It says, uh, uh, the guy uh, asks the woman, he says, look, before I marry you, I want to see you naked. She says, no, impossible, I can't. She goes to her mother. What should I do, mom? What is this guy? What kind of guy is this? The mother says, it's only once, and you know, maybe he'll marry you. He's a nice guy. Okay. Everything's done. He says, you know what? No, I didn't like your nose. <laughs> but that's the, that's the issue today, unfortunately. Yeah, it's all in the mind. Taste and try before you buy it. So in Jew Jewish law, premarital relations are not condoned. Extramarital relations are considered crimes. Adultery is a terrible sin. And relations, even within marriage, this is the hardest part of Jewish law, even within marriage, two weeks of the month, 
The laws of family purity, the hardest, really, this is, raises a human being on the level of an angel, really. That's what I call an angel behavior. I'm living with this woman in the same room. She's my wife. I can't touch her. That's mind-boggling. I mean, that's, that's just living in an immoral society today. How can a human being live like that? She's my wife. I can't touch her. And I think about 50 other women. Forget about it. I can't even touch my wife. Think about that today. That's, that's wild. So relations within marriage must accord the laws of family purity. On the other hand, we know the human being, number one, is not an animal. And therefore we try and elevate the human being above animal-like behavior. On the other hand, we know the human being is not an angel. And therefore we've got to put safeguards to make sure this guy is not going to slip. Judaism says sex is clean and neutral. It's a tool just like anything else in our lives. There's very few things the Torah says which are bad completely, evil. Even evil is a tool. <laughs> Without evil, we wouldn't have any free choice. So everything in life is clean and neutral. Sex is clean and neutral. We don't say it's dirty. It's great within a properly constituted marriage. Depends on what we do with it. Fourthly, which is interesting, sex cannot be separated from character. And that's a very important idea that the way a person behaves in other things, exactly the same way he's going to behave in sex. A person's a taker, he's a taker. A person's a giver, they're a giver. One takes, one gives. Depends who and what, what the situation is. Sex cannot be separated from a person's character. Sexuality only has meaning in the context of a relationship, otherwise just being used. And it only has value in the context of a permanent relationship. And like everything else in our lives, it has to be sanctified. Just like the act of eating, the act of sleeping, all these are base acts which animals do. So what difference whether the animal doing it or I'm doing it? You know, in Jewish law, it's interesting. We are not allowed to look at animals when they're engaged in the sex act. Why? Just to purify our minds. How much more so not to watch human beings in the sex act? Just to purify the mind. It's very important to have a clean mind and that's the importance of being married. The Talmud says a person who's not married cannot have a clean mind. They're so busy involved thinking about these things. But also it's separation from this. And that's the beauty of learning Torah. Torah purifies a person's mind. A person's thinking holy thoughts instead of thinking garbage thoughts. And don't think that a person can think neutral thoughts. Because the mind is like, there's no such thing as a vacuum in the mind. If the mind is not filled with holiness, it's automatically filled with garbage. It just goes in. You find this uh, phrase, the Vilnagon tells us, in the story of Joseph, it's, it says the pit was empty and there was no water. So the Rashi comments straight away, if it's empty, obviously there's no water. Why does the Torah tell you if it's empty, there's no water? That means there was something inside it. Two negatives make a positive. If it's empty and there's no water, there must be something else. So Rashi says, yes, there were scorpions inside. There were snakes and scorpions inside. The Vilna Gaon says this is human personality. If the human personality is empty of, of water, then it has snakes and scorpions inside. If it's empty of good values, then it's automatically it's full of bad. So those are the different axioms. Let's, let's talk about them more. The human being is not an animal. Simple observation shows us that we have the genitals of animals and participate in similar sexual processes. Why then can we not act like animals? It does seem to be nature's way. And indeed, Freudian psychology teaches us generally that we must see ourselves as we are. What are we? Pleasure-seeking animals. And that we will not succeed in negating our essential animal animality, except at the risk of going crazy. That's what Freud said. Try and control yourself, you're going to go crazy. So don't control yourself. That's the roots of the feminist society. It's built on Freud. In the physical and psychological sense, then, human beings are considered to be fundamentally no more than animals. Convinced of this fact, that we are all animals. We begin to act that way, without guilt. If we're animals, we're animals. Let's behave like animals. And even with gusto, there are no rules for animals to follow other than blind obedience to instincts, satisfaction of needs, and doing what comes naturally. And the consequence of this kind of behavior is disastrous. We see it around us. What do we see around us? Broken homes, broken hearts, loneliness, children born out of wedlock, loveless marriages, infidelity, and now AIDS. Why? Because we're animals and we do what comes naturally. We see the consequences of it. But if that is what we are, 
then the world, humanity, the soul, all of life becomes meaningless and empty. We're just animals. We were created in the image of God. The Bible starts off with the story of creation. Every single human being. I'm not talking about Jews, non-Jews. Every single human being was created in the image of God. And Judaism does not permit us to squander our values. If we're created in the image of God, we're not meant to lower ourselves, demean ourselves. We say, we say in the Yom Kippur prayers, Our souls are yours, and our body is the work of your hands. And a wedding service, the blessing is, is recited to remind the bride and groom that the human being is created in the image of God. We're creating God's image. Don't forget. Don't lose it in a fit of animal-like passion. We're creating in the, in the image of God. So while some segments of our society attempt to animalize our humanity, Judaism tries to humanize the animal. We're trying to elevate the animal mind. Whereas they're trying to make the human being into an animal, we're trying to elevate the animal side of man into a human being. On the other hand, we have to remember the human being is not an angel. If we are not animals, and that's not permitted to abuse our sexual gift, we are also not angels who may abstain from sex altogether. There's only one man who abstained from sex and was praised. Who was that? It was a student of Rabbi Akiva, Ben Azai. The Talmud tells us Ben Azai married the daughter of Rabbi Akiva and then he divorced her. He says, I have no room in my heart for two loves. I only love the Torah and that's it. Talmud comments on that. Ben Azai died. What does it mean Ben Azai died? He lost all impulse for anything human. He went off this world completely and he died. What happens when a person goes off his food? He went off his wife. He went off his material goods. And then he went off his food and died. That was the end of him. Allah ba shalom. You know the famous joke, it says, uh, the UJA was looking for Jews. They're knocking on doors. They come to one door and they say, are you Jewish? He says, no. Was your father Jewish? No. Was your grandfather Jewish? He says, no. My grandfather, Allah ba shalom, was never Jewish. <laughs> but the Shukran says, if a person is like Ben Azai, they don't have to get married. And the Shulchan Aruch then says, today no one is like Ben Azai. What does that mean? Don't fool yourself. No one is on the level of Ben Azai today. No one is a, on the level of an angel today. We're not angels, we're human beings. We have to realize that. And therefore Judaism frowns on celibacy. It is a mitzvah to get married as soon as possible, as early as possible. And especially in today's immoral day and age, it's a mitzvah to teach a child a trade as soon as possible. Get them married as soon as possible. Otherwise, it's impossible to be moral today, unfortunately. It's practically impossible, especially in the colleges. You send your kid away to college campus, it's practically possible. You know the, who are those uh, kids, uh, where is that? Yale Five. The Yale Five? Heard of the Yale Five? The five Orthodox boys in Yale fighting to have separate rooms? <laughs> so Jesus says it's a mitzvah to get married. This is in stark contrast to the celibacy of the Essenes who are the founders of Christianity. Jesus and Paul and the pronouncements against the institution of marriage which accepted as a concession to human frailty. Paul said people should marry only if they cannot contain for it is better to, better to marry than just to burn. And Matthew says be a eunuch for the sake of heaven. I mean the Essenes would, would castrate themselves to get rid of this urge. Judas says no, it's a good urge. Without the urges, a person can never do anything. Without the urges, I wouldn't get married, wouldn't have children, wouldn't buy a build a house, wouldn't go to work, wouldn't do anything. We need the urges. We have to sanctify them. Judaism says sex is a gift from God. And how could such a gift be considered evil or sinful? Properly used in a legitimate framework, sex is viewed positively as a joy and as a mitzvah. The patriarchs marry, the kings marry, the koanim, the priests marry, the prophets marry, the rabbis marry. Nowhere is there the slightest indication that sex or family interfere with their mission. They're married or married. Only one exception. Who is that? Moses. He had two sons and he separated from his wife. Why? Because he was on a different level completely. Rambam. See, Rambam, Nachmanides, has an interesting letter he wrote to his children. 
Nachmanides was an interesting character. He lived in Spain in the 1200s, 12th, 13th century, and he had a disputation. In those days, one of the ways the Christians used to convert Jews was they arranged a disputation between a Jew and a priest. A rabbi and a priest, and the Jews were forced to watch, and usually the priest beat the rabbi, because if the rabbi opened his mouth, they would kill him. The rabbi was limited in what he could say. The priest could say whatever he wanted. And then it was orchestrated, and the priest won, and the rabbi lost. And then they would expect the Jews who were the onlookers to convert en masse. So there was, a, there was an inquisition arranged with the, with the Ramban and Pablo Cristiani, who was a former Jew himself. And they had this disputation. You can get the book. The disputation is a movie now. The British made a movie by a Shakespeare actors. Very good movie. We have the soundtrack. Disputation. And Ramban wins the disputation. And he writes a book about it. So he got exiled from Spain and he moves to Jerusalem. He builds the synagogue of the Ramban. If you go to, if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to the old city today, you'll see Bet Knesset HaRamban. And he writes a book about it. So he got exiled from Spain and he moves to Jerusalem. He builds the synagogue of the Ramban. If you go to synagogue, if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to the old city today, you'll see Bet Knesset HaRamban. You'll see the synagogue of the Ramban. At least the leftovers of it. That's the Jordanians, the great King Hussein and company finished with it. Uh, the big tzaddik today. The big tzaddik. The people forget, you know. The 67 war and uh, Hussein was ready to join and destroy Israel. 48, I forget. So, the Ramban says in his letter to his children, he was away from them, he had to write letters to them. He writes, let a man not consider sexual union as something ugly and repulsive. For thereby we blaspheme God. To say that sex is ugly, sex is bad, is blaspheming God. While the sex act is considered good in the proper context, there are some ascetic pietists who viewed the pleasure of even the legitimate act with some disdain. And the students of the Arizal, who was a big Kabbalist in 16th century, 17th century Sfat, says, a person should sanctify himself at the time of intercourse so that he should derive no pleasure from it. Now that's the Kabbalist, the Kabbalist uh, idea. However, the seer of Lublin indicates that this applies before the act as it is impossible to have no pleasure during it. It's impossible. It's like saying, you know, I eat with no pleasure. What's the law? If a person eats with no pleasure, what's the law? He cannot make a blessing on the food. It's very simple. Um, if you see these stories about Hasidic rabbis used to swallow the food without deriving pleasure, of Nachman of Breslov. Impossible. Why? He wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to make a blessing on it. You have to derive some pleasure to be able to make a blessing. Anyway, sex is not a sin. It must, however, be humanized by affirming the reality of its power and attractiveness rejoicing in its presence, using it as a blessing for the benefit and development of humanity, and abstaining from it when its creator forbids it. Thirdly, we said that sex is clean and neutral. Judaism believes that sex is morally neutral and depends on what the human being does with it. Sex does not even have the status of an intrinsic value, but can function as a means to express love and build family, or as random personal gratification. So sex is a tool, it's neither good nor bad. It's a tool, depends on what a person uses it for. It cannot be separated from character. It depends on how we use it. So therefore, if it depends on how we use it, it depends who we are to describe on how we use it. So it cannot be separated from our total personality. The way we handle our own sexuality is not primarily a matter of fact, but of value. What kind of values do we have? Are we moral people? Are we ethical people? Are we devoted to one person and one person only? Can we be trusted? Oh no, you know what? One night with this one, one night with that one, one night with that one. The way we handle our own sexuality is not primarily a matter of fact, but of values. And it's a revealing indication of character. Is our partner a giver or a taker? Sensitive or gross? Caring or selfish? Religious or irreligious? Then you find out. Truth will come out. If sex is merely a matter of physical function, it could be treated like a mechanical problem. And that's today, unfortunately. Get the best engine, use the best technique, and achieve the best results. If it doesn't work, trade it in. 
there's movies and there's tapes and there's books and there's this technique and technique and technique. The sky's the limit. A lot of people are so put off. Once you've eaten the food this way and that way, that way, you get sick of it. Same thing over and over again. Thus, the problems of premarital sex, adultery, and casual sex are really a question of values. The values we have to inculcate in the children. What are the values we have to inculcate in the children? Honesty, integrity, family, virtues. All these are values which we have to, in which the parents, really unfortunately today, are, are failing. I saw a picture in US News World Report a couple, couple of weeks ago of a school in the South, and you had 15-year-old girls with their children going to school. There's a whole class full of 15-year-old girls. This is a high school in the South. Same in New Jersey. It's probably the same. I just don't, I'm not involved with public schools over here. And you have to see it in the picture. I mean, it's an amazing picture. Where were their parents? So they say well, usually they're children of one-parent families. And that's another problem. Breakdown of society. Why? Because of the values. It's all values. It's all values. That's all it is. Values. Sex only has meaning in the context of relationship. Perhaps our greatest fear is that our lives will be meaningless. If sex is to have any meaning, it must be used as an expression of love or affection for another person. If we depersonalize the act by relating to another person only on a biological level, we dehumanize our partner and rob ourselves of our own integrity. If sleeping together would produce happiness, then the happiest person in the world should be the prostitute. Because she's sleeping with someone 50 times a night. It's becoming characteristic of our society that old as well as young people seek experiences rather than relationships. <coughs> Episodes instead of a long-term relationship. And we can blame this on TV. What's the next episode? It's not an episode. A day in the life of someone is not an episode in the life of someone. It's a link in a chain going from the beginning to the end. It's a part of a whole. It's not just an arbitrary act. Ramban, on the verse of Genesis, which we quoted before in the previous class, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and stick to his wife, cling to his wife, be one flesh. He says there can be no true oneness of the flesh without first experiencing a cleaving together of the heart. Why? Because the verse says, number one, it says, First he will cling to his wife, and then it says, and then it says they will be one flesh. First comes the clinging of the minds, and then comes the clinging of the flesh. So it's got to be accompanied by closeness and joy. The rabbis talk about rape in marriage. You know, today it's just a new thing. I think it's, it's just now they're legislating against it. A year ago or so. But rape in marriage was... The rabbis say it's forbidden to have mari marital intercourse. We're going to talk about it next week. Um, the laws of sex and marriage we're going to talk about next week. So it has to be accompanied by closeness and joy. That's what we learn from this verse. The Bakbishro first cling to her and then the act. So the sexual union of two people on a primitive, impersonal, casual, biological level is a gross misfortune. It is by mutual consent, it is simply mutual exploitation. It has met the test of liberty which is what, one of the fundamentals of this country, it is not coerced, but has failed the, true, the test of meaning, sensitivity, decency, and responsibility to the future. So therefore, sexuality only has value in a permanent relationship. People who have committed themselves to one another and have made that commitment in a binding covenant recognized by God and society, the act of sexual union, the deepest personal statement that any human being can make, must be reserved for the moment of total oneness. The sex act is meant to be the first and most significant event of married life. And its force and beauty should not be compromised by sharing relations in the expectation that someday a decision will be made to marry or not to marry. In fact, it's interesting, we're going to talk about it next week, a person is not allowed to have intercourse if they've already decided to get divorced and they haven't told the other partner. Then it's a form of usage just using the other one. And they told the other partner, the other partner agreed, they're not using each other. They're still married and they can still have sex. The test of a good marriage is not compatibility in bed, but compatibility in life. They may be compatible in bed, but you know, they wake up the next morning, they're fighting day and night. <laughs> it's 
there's not really compatibility in bed. That's unfortunately today. It's like the main thing today is compatibility. Is anyone waiting for for a bus? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So engaging in it, just to test it out, desanctifies the act. It is not rehearsal for marriage, it's rehearsal for divorce. So we have the next axiom is, it has to be sanctified. The Torah motivates the Jew to sanctify within marriage. Because if it's part of a daily routine, it threatens to become wearisome and a bore. And that's the problem today. And sometimes it becomes more divisive than supportive. The laws of family purity require abstinence during and shortly following the menstrual period. Places the sex act in a special category. On a basic level, sanctity means separating oneself consciously from immorality and illicit thoughts. Maimonides talks about the laws of marriage in a section called Kedusha, holiness. Sanctity and holiness are related to separation. He states that the deliberate separation from the illicit is an act that constitutes sanctification. How do we sanctify ourselves? The act of separation from illicit behavior is the act of sanctification. Nachmanides goes beyond Maimonides in his comment on the verse, Kedushim to you, be holy. Nachmanides says, sanctify yourself even in permitted actions. There's two different levels over here. Maimonides says, sanctification is keeping away from illicit actions. Nachmanides says, sanctification is even in actions which are allowed. For instance, he has a whole section. If you want to look it up, the Ramban on Parshat Kedoshim. Very wild Ramban over there. Ramban says, talks about sanctification. Extras. Where does the Torah say you can't use foul language? Kedoshim to you, be holy. Where does the Torah say that you shouldn't be too frequent with your own wife? Be holy. Where does the Torah say you can't eat like a pig, a kosher pig, and eat too much kosher food? Be holy, Ramban says. All these things are sanctification in even whatever's allowed to a person, not being extremist. The Talmud says an individual who is setting up a bedroom in his home, the bed should be facing north and south. I mean, it's wild. <laughs> Imagine. You go, you move into a house, you get a compass. North, south, where is it? In Highland Park, it's very easy. You know, a north side, a south side, it's very easy. I don't know how many people have compasses in their bedrooms. Normally, a person fits the bed according to the contours of the room. Depends on where, how the shape of the room you fit the bed. What does the Talmud mean by north-south? At first, the person might say, you know what, we don't know what it means. It's mystical. We don't know what it means. Nachmanides in his book, as we mentioned before, makes the fa this fascinating suggestion. North, the, Norman, the northern hemisphere winds are cold winds. He's talking from Spain, don't forget. He's living in Spain or Israel. The cold winds come from the north, just like over here. We're in New York. Where do the cold winds come from? The north. I don't like cold winds over here. I like north winds. But the Canadians keep their, their cold, frigid weather. South winds are warm winds. When the Talmud says the bed should be between north and south, it's telling us it should not be too cold and not too hot. Not too frigid, not too passionate. The state of mind a person should have when they approach conjugal relations should be balanced. It should not be cold, it should also be overly passionate because then one loses control and then one is more likely to abuse. And if a person abuses, then one individual is using the other for their own purposes, their own gratification. So North-South business speaks volumes about what is intended. The idea of discipline, moderation, the idea of being concerned to give pleasure to one's partner as well as take. The primary obligation, it's interesting on the, on the, on the Torah and on the man, is this week's Torah portion. What does this week's Torah portion have to say about marriage? Any ideas? Mishpatim. All the dry civil laws. The Torah says three things, three obligations a man has towards his wife. It's interesting, the Torah does not talk about obligations of a woman towards a husband. It's revolutionary. Why? Because in societies before that, there were no obligations of a man to his wife. All the obligations were from the woman to the husband. The Torah comes along. The first, the first, that was quick. The first book 
which discusses the obligations of man to his wife is the Torah. No other human code before that mentions any obligations for a man to his wife. A man could do whatever he wanted to his wife. A man could beat his wife till how many years ago? 100 years ago? England in the Middle Ages or till the 19th century. You could beat your wife, kill your wife, kill your child. No problem. It's my house, my castle. Judaism says no. Three things, three obligations. Shera, Kisutavo, and Atalo Tigra. Torah tells us this week's parasha. Shera, what's Shera? Shera is food supplies. You've got to provide. The man has to provide for his wife food, sustenance. Kisuta, he's got to provide clothes. In fact, the rabbis went so far as to say, when do you have to buy the clothes? Guess. Not quite. Three times a year, three festivals. Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuot. Today, no one knows about Shavuot, just that's why. They don't buy clothes for their wives, though. No, I'm just joking. But um, three times a year, a person has to buy clothes at least. Rambam says a person has to buy better clothes for his wife and children than for himself. He's got to honor them more. So we have food, sustenance, shera, kisuta, which is clothing, and onata. Onata is marital relations. A man is obliged to satisfy his wife. Interesting idea. Why? Normally, it's the man who takes. He doesn't care whether she's satisfied or not. Societies before that, there was no mitzvah for a man to satisfy his wife. What do you mean? We just take whatever we want. That's it. That's the man. In Jewish law, it's a man who rapes a woman, not vice versa. There's no such thing as the rape of a man in Jewish law. A woman cannot rape a man. No such thing. If the man doesn't want to do it, you can't force him. There's nothing you can do. You can put a gun to his head, you still can't force him. So it's interesting, there's a concept of a man satisfying his wife. It's biblical law. Why? Because a man is more likely to abuse. So therefore the man is addressed by the halakha. You're more likely to abuse, we're going to discuss you. You are the one who's going to provide these things. Insofar as playing games of availability in the conjugal relationship, whether the husband plays games with his wife, either one playing games, what I mean by games is, I don't feel like it tonight, dear. I've got a headache. Uh, it's a bad night tonight, you know. A person shouldn't play games like that in marriage. This is sufficient grounds for a divorce. But the greatest obligation is for each partner to satisfy each other. A man has to be clean to his house for the first year. We talked about last week, three kinds of people who were sent back from the wars. Remember we talked about last week? We said the fourth one was a person who was scared. The first one was a person who got married. The first year of marriage, he's sent back from the army. Why? He's got to be clean from his household. First year, he's got to satisfy his wife. And it's so intense in the first year. But certainly a spillover applies throughout the entire duration of the marriage. What does it mean to gladden his wife? Very bluntly, it's to satisfy her. The husband has the obligation that in the sexual relationship, he leaves his wife pleased. This is not creating artificial performance anxiety. <laughs> As if to say, you know what, the experience has got to measure seven or eight in the Richter scale. <laughs> the intention is that there should be a primary show of love and affection and concern for one another. Because basically that's what a woman desires, is love and affection. And there's no love and affection, you're just using her. She feels used. So reading through so many of the books with regard to this, you will see that not only is there a desire for a climactic high, but also a desire to transmit affection. In our way of thinking, it is not sex that creates love. That's unfortunate. That's Hollywood. It is love that creates sex. And when I mean love, I mean true love, not the first lecture. Sex is something which is very sacred, as opposed to Christianity, which views sex as degrading. So sacred that according to Yaakov Emden, we make a blessing on it. Every night, we say that the blessings on the Shema, which are also blessings on the marital act. This interesting programming because at night this percolates through the system and the subconscious. We read the Shema before going to sleep. So as part of that blessing it says, May my bed be complete in front of you. What does that mean? May this act be complete in front of you. And it's so holy we incorporate it as part of our liturgy. So that's basically the idea, the Jewish idea of sex is it's a tool, something which you could use either for good or for bad. It's up to us. It depends on what kind of character we have. we have. It's all part of character building. Judaism is basically a religion of character building. What are all these laws for? Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And the answer is character building. That's how you build a child. How do you build a child? 
Write down ground rules. You have ground rules. This is right, and this is wrong. This is something which children want to know at an early age. Is this right or is it wrong? Well, uh, you choose, dear. Child grows up confused. Doesn't know. Doesn't have any boundaries. That's unfortunate. So many children today are lost because of that, because there are no boundaries. Okay, next week, we have the discussion of uh, sex in marriage. We'll talk about it next week. Any questions, quickly? Yes. Right. Forbidden from the Torah, or is it forbidden from the rabbis? And it depends and on other factors as well. If the woman doesn't go to the mikvah, it's, it's forbidden from the Torah. Um, it's considered immorality, but it's not considered adultery. There's a big difference between adultery and immorality. It's immoral, but it's not adultery. The child from that union is not considered a mamzer. It's, uh, the, mo the woman is not married, the child from that union is not considered a mamzer. So it's not as strict as adultery. I didn't want to put it in the same uh, vein as adultery. Yes, any other questions? Okay, same time, same channel next week. Don't flip the switch.